0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me." This is the Word of the Lord. Well, this morning we do indeed gather with Christians all over the globe to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but I'm not sure we always think hard enough on the reality of what we stake our lives on. I mean, consider this. I trust in this room, most of us in here have probably experienced the loss of a loved one. And yet I can guarantee you that not a single person in here has had that same loved one come knock on your door three days later and say, check it out, I'm alive. So we've never experienced it. And yet we believe it. I mean, we really believe it. So much so that as believers we would all say that our lives are not the same from that time where we came to believe this truth. Because we believe this, our allocation of time is different than it would be otherwise. Because we love to serve. We want to serve Christ in His body, so we serve the church. We serve our brothers and sisters let's just be straight. If Christ wasn't really risen from the dead, I trust we'd all have more expendable income because for Christians, we want to give sacrificially just as Jesus taught us, and we could just go on and on and on about the many ways that Christ has changed our lives so incredibly profoundly. See, we really believe that Christ is risen from the dead, and for good reasons, some of which I want to reflect on this morning, as I think this is both a faith-building exercise for believers and something that should hopefully get the attention of any unbelievers who might be with us today. I trust most of you know that Christianity, unlike other world religions, is truly a falsifiable faith. I mean, if someone were to say, Gautama the Buddha never lived, you wouldn't destroy Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't finally rest on the historicity of Buddha, but on the entire philosophical religious system. Or what about Hinduism? If someone said Krishna never lived, you wouldn't destroy it because Hinduism has millions of gods, so many, no one even knows them all. And so, again, the entire system isn't built on the historicity of any one of them. But you see, if Jesus wasn't really a historical figure, and more to the point, if He did not really rise from the dead that first Easter Sunday, please know this, what we're doing right now is a complete and utter waste of time. I mean, it looks like it might be a nice day outside. We should just blow this joint and go do something else. But… If He was, in fact, a historical figure and He did, in fact, rise from the dead, then we have to deal with the reality that not only then is the resurrection true, but that means everything He said and did is true, and Jesus calls all of us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Him. So, here's what we're going to do this morning, and this is different than our normal pattern of just going right through books of the Bible This morning, I'm going to work through the outline that you should have found in your gathering guide, and I'm going to make four points in an effort to demonstrate that Jesus rose from the dead that first Easter Sunday, and then we'll consider three implications that necessarily flow from that. So, look at your outline. The first major heading is Jesus really rose from the dead, and we're going to focus on those four subpoints to support this. So let's start with the first one. The first thing that we have to establish is that Jesus really died. Again, listen to verses three through four of the first Corinthians text I read a moment ago. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This passage elucidates that Jesus died and rose again. And this is a very important text when you think about the historical reliability of the resurrection. See, virtually all scholars, conservative and liberal alike, view 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8 as a very early creed of the early church. And why this is so important is because this makes this way too important for any historians to believe that myth would have had time to creep in. I mean, consider this. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians between A.D. 55 and 57. We know that. There's clear temporal markers that help us there. So, we know that's when he wrote. And that's already amazingly early when you just think about ancient history. That's less than 30 years after Jesus' death. So, so, most people were still alive who would have seen and experienced these events too early for myth by all historical accounts. But this creed is even earlier. And notice that Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. And that, that's technical language. Most believe Paul probably received this either in Damascus shortly after his conversion, or when he went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James. Either way, you're talking about a creed Paul received between two and eight years after the death of Jesus, which is absolutely stunning. Historically, there are no parallels to this. When you're trying to study other historical figures, trying to figure out what's myth and what's not, it's usually way, way after that person is dead and off the scene. That being said, for our purposes on this first point, I just want you to notice how plainly the death of Jesus is stated. Paul says, Christ died for our sins, and He was buried. And all four Gospels support this. Now, and this is obviously a vital point. Jesus of Nazareth, according to Christians, the one born of a virgin, the one who is fully God and fully man, He died on a Roman cross see, this is at the very heart of Christianity. And again, if this is not true, we're wasting our time this morning. Thus, in an effort to reject biblical Christianity, all sorts of arguments have been made against the historic death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. So, one theory that takes aim at the death of Christ that seems to get resurrected, pun intended, every single year around this time on network TV is this view that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He merely swooned and was later resuscitated by His disciples. And while major network TV loves this theory, almost no true theologians or historians argue for it because it just doesn't work. You see, the Romans were masters at death. They were good at it. What, what more can I say? They crucified thousands upon thousands of people during the empire, and they did a good job killing those they wanted dead. And I'm going to be quick here because I covered some of this on Friday night, but suffice it to say, with what we know about what Jesus went through, there is no way He lived through that process. First, we're told that He was scourged. Now, now this is that beating where they take this whip with multi-prongs, and at the end of each piece of the whip, there's uh, pieces of bone or metal or glass. The purpose of that instrument is when it strikes, it is to rip the flesh, oftentimes rip pieces of flesh right off of the person. Now, those charged with doing the scourging were trained to take somebody within an inch of their life and just barely pull back. Sometimes they would fail and actually kill the individual right there during the scourging. No matter what, there is a lot of loss of blood here. Bodies would often start going into shock. And so, we, as we read the gospel narratives, we know Jesus is carrying the crossbeam and at one point falls down under the weight of it. Now look, Jesus was a strong guy. He was a carpenter. He carried wood all the time. He's falling down under the weight of that crossbeam because his life is slipping away as he's losing blood then he's taken out and he's nailed to this cross 5 to 7 inch long spikes nailed through his hands and feet and the way you die on a cross is asphy- asphyxiation right you 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 literally you suffocate and so what they would do in order to extend life is they would push up on their legs and pull up on their arms and take a breath and then they would go back down and eventually they, they just wear out and they can no longer breathe and they die. Of course, we know Jesus had already lost a lot of blood at that point. Many would say who have studied this from a medical standpoint that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, He was feeling His life slipping away. Now, because it was a festival week. The Jews wanted those bodies off of the cross. They wanted them off of the cross sooner than normal. And so, one of the ways that the Romans would do this is they would come in and break the legs, right, because now you can no longer push up. But when they got to Jesus, they realized He was already dead. He had died earlier than they expected. But just to make sure, because the Romans don't mess this up, one of the soldiers takes a spear and sticks it right through Jesus' side, right through His heart. And John, who does not have an MD, said that when that spear was pulled out, what looked to be water and blood flowed out of that. And now, heart surgeons would say within the pericardial sac there is a fluid that looks like water, exactly what John describes is what happened. Jesus was dead on that cross. The swoon theory absolutely does not work. Scripture tells us, history tells us, Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to a Roman cross and He died and He was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Which leads to the second point here supporting the historic bodily resurrection of Jesus, and that is this tomb that Jesus was laid in on Friday was empty on Sunday. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And you see this very clearly in all four Gospels as well. In fact, we're told the precise tomb He was buried in, namely that of a well-known man named Joseph of Arimathea, who we see in Mark 15 was actually a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was a member of the Supreme Court of the Jews, and John tells us that he had become a secret follower of Jesus. And so this is important, okay? You've got to think this one through. This is not something the church would have made up, because it would have been easily falsifiable, if not true, being promoted all over the place as it was, right? Think about just a couple of ways this could have gone down. The church says, he was buried in Joseph's tomb, and Joseph stands up and he says, no, he wasn't. It's my tomb. I can show you. There's nothing in there. Or they say they make him up, right? That's what some say. Well, they just made up Joseph. He was he was buried in a member of the council's tomb named Joseph of Arimathea. And Annas and Caiaphas, they get together with the Sanhedrin. They're like, Is there a Joseph? No, there's no Joseph. So they so they call a press conference, right? CNN's there, and they're like, This is an absolute bold faced lie. There's not even a Joseph of Arimathea on the Sanhedrin. do you, do you see? If this wasn't true this would have been a bad deal. This would have been a bad thing for the disciples to put out, but they did, and it was never refuted. He was buried in a very specific tomb on Friday, and we see that on Sunday that tomb was empty. And Here's the deal. No one argues that the tomb was not empty. No one. You really can't. Look at the Jews or the Romans could have produced a body to stop the followers of Christ, they would have done so. I mean, as Christianity is starting to take off, how long do you think it would have taken for the Romans or the Jews to say, come on, let's put an end to it, just get the carcass out here, we we, we, we got to stop this thing? But they didn't, because they couldn't. And thus again, theories abound as to what happened. Now, these theories started fast. The first one is in the Bible itself, as the Jews were struggling with the empty tomb in real time. And so, in Matthew's gospel, we're told of this story that the Jewish leaders come up with, namely that the disciples snuck in and stole the body. Now, let's just think about this one for a minute. When you read the gospels, one of the pieces of circumstantial evidence that is striking to me, that helps me to recognize, we're not dealing with fables here, you're dealing with real historical narratives, is the way Jesus' disciples are consistently described during His lifetime. I mean, if you're making up a story with a goal of getting people to follow a particular group of leaders, you're probably not going to show them looking like bumbling buffoons half the time, but but that's what you see of the disciples in the Gospels. And so, With this theory, all of a sudden, these guys are transformed from total doofus status to Delta Force studs pulling off the most amazing clandestine mission of all time, rolling away this massive stone with, by the way, some of Rome's finest standing right there protecting that, armed to the teeth, being told, if this body's stolen, you're dead, and yet, that's supposedly what happened. And, and, and then if, if these new Delta Force disciples are able to pull this off, listen, then they all go to the grave with this lie. They all die for their risen Savior, knowing that they, in fact, ripped off the body and His dead carcass is in Peter's mom's basement or wherever. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy talk. So, other theories have to come up some argue that they went to the wrong tomb. That's the explanation. I mean, I guess. I get lost even with a GPS. So, I guess we all understand the potential of going to the wrong place. But come on, for this one to work as your argument against the resurrection, you have to carry that all the way through and say that everyone keeps going to the wrong tomb and then come up with some sort of argument as to why the Jewish authorities don't say, "'Hey, morons.'" We know Joseph of Arimathea, we know his tomb's right here, and here's the body. So can we stop with all this risen from the dead garbage, right? I hope we all recognize that it takes more faith to believe these theories, which by the way, are the best that people have come up with over 2,000 years. I'm not just taking the easy ones. This is the best they have, and it takes more faith to believe those than to believe that this tomb was really empty. Here's another one. John Dominic Crossan of the Jesus Seminar, a favorite scholar of network TV. And let me just pause there, right, because this is so irksome. Would you think it's fair if your favorite news channel is doing an expose on whichever political party you don't like? I won't even name one. And the person that they bring out to interview about that party is somebody from the other party whose life's work is to bring that party down. Would you think that's fair? Is that good news? Is that good reporting? Absolutely not. And yet, network TV loves to interview guys like John Dominic Crossan and the Jesus Seminar and put under his name Christian theologian. I, I digress. Crossan argues that Jesus wasn't really buried in a tomb, but was taken out to the countryside, thrown into a shallow grave, which allowed his body to be dug up by dogs, wild dogs, and eaten. It's a very convenient view for crossing because it does get rid of the body, but it utterly fails because it doesn't deal with one bit of actual first-century documentation, both Christian and Jewish alike, that says that He was placed in a particular tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and everybody knew where it was. The point is, Jesus was laid in a particular tomb on Friday, and come Sunday, that tomb was empty. And so we now turn our attention to eyewitness evidence that not only was the tomb empty, but people actually saw and experienced the risen Jesus. He went around meeting with his disciples. Again, go back to that early creed, seemingly going around as early as two to eight years after the death of Jesus. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me." In a modern-day court of law, If you have a single eyewitness who says, he did it, I was there, saw it with my own two eyes, you got a pretty good case. Now, they might, a good lawyer might cross-examine him and find out something about, you know, his past or something where, where maybe they get it thrown out. But if you literally have hundreds of diverse, independent witnesses all saying essentially the same thing, but in their own way, as you would expect if these witnesses were truly independent, then you know what? Case closed. And I believe that's what we're dealing with when we start looking at the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' bodily resurrection. When you begin with 1 Corinthians 15, you see that the risen Christ appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then He appeared to the disciples, right, the eleven, because Judas is gone. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one point. And Paul says, by the way, most of them are still alive. Go ask them. That's a pretty bold statement. He appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. And then to all the apostles, and oh yeah, Paul says, He appeared also to me, so I, the one writing this letter to you, saw Him firsthand. If you add the gospel narratives, we see that He appeared to many others as well, including appearing first to women, which is quite frankly a little on the surprising side, especially if you're trying to argue that the resurrection narratives are myth. And the reason I say that is because both in the in first-century Judaism and the first-century Roman world, a woman's testimony was not permissible in a court of law. So, if you were sitting down at that period of time trying to make up a story to gather a following, you're probably not going to make women your lead eyewitnesses. But if that's what really happened and your aim is to faithfully record what really happened, just like Luke says, first few verses of his gospel, well, then you're going to tell it like it is, whether people like it or not. In fact, the diversity and character of the resurrection appearances through these various eyewitnesses makes such a strong case for the resurrection. Quoting from Peter Williams, the warden of the Tyndale House, quote, Jesus appeared to men and women singularly to men and women in groups, groups ranging from two to 500. He appeared indoors, outdoors, in Judea and in Galilee. He appeared in the countryside and in the city. He appeared close up and at a distance. He appeared morning and evening, by prior appointment, without appointment. He appeared on a hill, by a lake, on a road. He appeared sitting, standing, walking. The variety is quite amazing, and He's always talking. He eats with people, He appears to adults, never to children. The variety and character of the resurrection appearances is not the sort of thing that that is anything like the supposed appearance of ghosts or religious visions that people say they often have. It's something far more real, and that means it's not something you put down to a certain amount of gullibility or imagination." See, there's really only two possible arguments against the resurrection appearances. And that is their legend, they just made Him up, or they were hallucinations of those who saw Him. So, let's consider both of these. First, their legend. Here I would submit to you, that's absolutely impossible. To argue that the resurrection appearances are legend is impossible. And again, I would appeal back to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. I already said we're talking about a creed that would have been in existence for sure by two to eight years after the death of Jesus. By all historical standards, there is no possible way that there's time for legend to have crept in. In fact, given that all four of the Gospels are dated within the first century, there's not even time for legend to crop up in those, because you're writing to people who were still alive who saw the events. I mean, this would be like me saying, my younger brother, by the way, my younger brother did play football in high school and college, but this would be like me saying, my younger brother was the greatest football player in the history of Texas high school football. His senior year, he had 750 tackles. He ran for 100 touchdowns. He threw for another 50. And everyone says it was the greatest season in the history of the sport, right? So, I post that on Facebook, and that sort of works maybe, except for the fact that some of his teammates are still alive. And so, I put it out there, and some of the gullible folks say, wow, that's amazing. And so, it goes viral until one of his teammates says, um, excuse me, I know your brother. He was a pretty decent football player. But what you're sharing is just straight-up lies. It's wrong. I was there, right? And it's over. I look like an idiot." See, for myth to have time to creep in, the eyewitnesses need to be dead and off the scene so no one can say, you're a liar, I was there. And in the case of the resurrection of Christ, there's not enough time between the events and the writing of the New Testament. And so quickly, second one, some say, okay, okay, all right, you, you got me there. No time for legend to creep in, but isn't it plausible that they're all just hallucinating? I mean, you know, they all wanted it so badly that they're just, that they're just hallucinating these experiences. And I mean, maybe, I'm going to try to be beyond gracious here, maybe the whole group of Christ followers got their hands on some bad angel dust, right? Maybe they were all got together and they were smoking some peyote, you know? Maybe, maybe, maybe they found a crack pipe somewhere, and they all start hallucinating together. Only big problem, to be honest, it's an insurmountable problem, psychologists, the best psychologists in the world have been interviewed on this, and universally they all agree, There is no such thing as mass hallucinations. They don't exist. Hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their nature, they happen to one person at a time. So, that view doesn't work either. The fact is, Jesus really died. He was really placed in a tomb. The tomb was really empty, and it was empty because He rose from the dead. there's one more line of evidence that I want to consider, which is also important in a court of law, and that's the circumstantial evidence. And here I want to point to five pieces of circumstantial evidence that makes the case stronger with each and every one. So, number one, think about this. The early church, made up of all Jews at first, changed their day of worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, prescribed by God in their Scriptures, they changed that to Sunday, the day of the resurrection. I don't need to say much on this except to point out that our church is only eight years old, but if I were to do anything drastic, I'd hear, well, we haven't always done it like that, Pastor, right? We're talking here about Jews whose faith is thousands of years old. The Sabbath is commanded very clearly by God in their holy Scriptures, and somehow they come to the conclusion that Jesus has fulfilled that, and they change their day of worship to Sunday that's big. You have to admit that's big. Something major happened. Let's keep going. Closely related number two, this group of people now worshiping on Sunday start something called the church, and the whole message of the church centers around the resurrection. And 2,000 years later, we're gathered in a completely different continent Still celebrating the resurrection, and it's never been disproved. Again, so many opportunities for the Jewish leaders or Roman authorities who wanted this thing squashed to say, go get the body, but they didn't because they couldn't. Number three, the changed lives of the disciples. I alluded to this one earlier, but let me encourage you to do a close study on these guys both before and after the resurrection, and you tell me if they are the same people. I mean, let's just take Peter. While Jesus is being interrogated, punched in the face, beaten, spit on, and all of that, Peter's out warming himself by a fire, you know, he's out in the courtyard having a grand old time, and a little servant girl comes up, and she's like, hey, you were with him, weren't you? It's like, nope, not me. Later another inquiry, this man was with Jesus, weren't you? I don't even know the man. Finally others came up. They're like, dude, you got a Galilean accent. You're clearly one of the disciples. And Peter invokes an Old Testament curse on himself. Some say, well, he was cussing. That's not the point. When he talks about the curse, he, he, he's literally saying, let me be accursed by God if I knew that guy. That's pretty serious denial. And then the rooster crows. That's the fearless leader of this motley crew. They've already run for their lives out of the garden. Peter's scared of a servant girl and denies his Lord not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> And yet, after the resurrection, isn't it the same Peter who stands before more than 5,000 people and preaches one of the best sermons the world has ever heard, and he becomes the key leader in the church? What happened? He met the resurrected Jesus. Closely tied, number four, the disciples were all, all with the exception of John, who was roughed up significantly and exiled the rest of them were all brutally murdered for their faith in the risen Christ, and not one of them, not one, recanted. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be inclined to think, well, that's not all that impressive in a day and age like ours. I mean, every few months or so, we've got these religious zealots who walk into a building with a, you know, a vest on and blow themselves to smithereens. They're willing to die for their faith, right? What's the difference? Listen, you can't compare the two. You just can't. Think about it. A modern-day Muslim never met Muhammad. They've they've been told the whole thing's real by a parent, maybe, or parent's parent, or whoever else. But the point is, they, they, they do rest on some sort of blind hope. The apostles, on the other hand, were actually with Jesus. And if they stole the body, which is essentially what you have to argue if you're saying that Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, if they stole the body and made up these tales and created these legends, which again, we've already dispelled, but let's pretend for a moment that's what happened, then here's what you're saying. You're saying that every single one of these guys would have been willing to die a horrific death, individually, mind you, not as a group. They didn't have the strength of, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya and let's all go down together. No, they each one of them individually faced horrific death, and not one of them says, just, just kidding, <laughs> made it all up, sorry about that, thought it was all fun and games until you brought out the large stones and threatened to crush my skull, so I quit tapping out here, right? Not one. They were beheaded, speared, crucified, crucified upside down, stoned to death because they refused to say that they had not met the risen Christ. So, so these little fraidy cats before the resurrection each stared death in the face, and they said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. You can kill my body, but that's all you can do to me, because to live is Christ, and if I die, I gain Christ. See if the resurrection is not true. I can't get my head around that. i got to think at least one of them. To be honest, I think all of them when facing their own gruesome death, would have said, you got me. (laughs) Just a joke. Can I go home now? I want to see my wife. I want to hug my kids. I've always been hopeful to see my grandchildren. Are are we good here? I'm sorry. Can I go? Finally, how about the conversion of two skeptics? More specifically, how about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and James, the brother of Jesus. Start with James. Here you have to ask yourself, what would cause Jesus' own brother to fall down at the feet of his brother and worship him as God? Think about that, right? We're talking about someone you would have seen growing up. I got five kids. I know about the sin nature. I guarantee you he made fun of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, little Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, and mom and dad, mom and dad's favorite, right? He certainly didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God during his earthly ministry, as we see in the gospel accounts. So, what would cause this man to all of a sudden come to believe that his brother, Jesus, is actually the Son of God and lived the rest of his life worshiping his brother as God? Only one thing. He met the resurrected Jesus. What about Paul? Don't forget that Paul hated Christians. He says so much in this 1 Corinthians 15 text. He was a persecutor of the church. So what makes someone's enemy become such a loyal follower that he's willing to die, to write, to live as Christ and die as gain? What makes him go from hating Christ, hating Christianity, to living his whole life to spread this guy's message? Again, there's only one answer. He met the resurrected Christ. Both of them did. They had seen His life on earth. They had heard His teachings, and then when they met the resurrected Jesus, they knew, right? That's when He demonstrated His divinity, and that's when everything changed for them. Folks, think about it. Jesus of Nazareth, the man Christians believe was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, was crucified and died. He was placed in a tomb on Friday, and that tomb was empty Sunday morning. That same Jesus met with multiple disciples. Having been raised from the dead, He met with multiple disciples for 40 days in a number of different settings. Circumstantial evidence for this abounds. Jesus has changed the world. But to be sure, there's still a faith component but listen, there's a faith component wherever you land on this. Christians don't just land on blind faith. We believe we have all the evidence you can have that Jesus lived, died on the cross, and rose from the dead that first Easter Sunday morning. So as we wrap up, I want to hit three implications of the resurrection, if only briefly, because I know time's running short. Number one. Jesus' resurrection, His resurrection demonstrated that He was exactly who He claimed to be. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated He was exactly who He claimed to be. No one doubts that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, walked the face of the earth. And all you got to do is read the Gospels, and you know He claimed to be God. And everybody has to do something with this guy, Jesus. Some say, well, he was a good moral teacher. We should follow some of the stuff that he said. Others say, you know, he's he's a bold-faced liar. He's not the son of God. Others say he's a lunatic, whatever. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call Him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about His being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. In John 20, when the risen Christ appeared to Thomas, you know that scene, that's the one where Thomas wants to touch his wounds. And and when that happens, Thomas falls on His face and says, my Lord and my God. The question is why. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. Thomas didn't call Him Lord and God, neither did anyone else. But again, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, He made claims of deity, He claimed who He could forgive sin, but who can forgive sin but God alone? He claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He claimed to be the great I Am, the Old Testament name for God. And when the risen Christ stood before Thomas, Thomas knew at that point it's all true. The resurrection proved it once for all, and Thomas worshiped Jesus as Lord and God, and that is precisely what we must do as well. Number two, Jesus' resurrection vindicates His work on the cross. Here we need to ask, why did Jesus come to die in the first place? And the Scriptures are clear, God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came because we needed Him to. Jesus came to rescue us from our own sin and the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God. And Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that everything He came to accomplish on the cross was in fact accomplished. When He said, it is finished, that was All the more clear when he said greetings to his disciples, having been raised from the dead. Listen, you might be here this morning and you've not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus. I would plead with you to look to Christ. Christ came for sinners like all of us here. But you see, we must believe. Jesus calls us to repent and believe these things about Jesus. And, and believing, according to the Scripture, isn't just a mental assent. It is a changed life. It is a following Him. It is a He says, go, you go, because He's Lord, right? You're bowing down to King. He says, if anyone would come after Me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. And so, I'd plead with you, dear friend, look to Christ today. Repent and believe the gospel. Finally, Jesus' resurrection secures the resurrection of His followers. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are all still dead in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, not one of us should have a hope of a resurrection. That's Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians 15. But here's where he lands. He says, but Christ has been raised and thus for those who trust in Him, we can have all the confidence in the world that we will be too. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, death, our worst enemy, the product of the fall and of the curse, will be overturned. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus has done that and that He's coming again, and when He comes again, There will be no more death. There will be no more weeping, no more sorrow. But we will get to be with Christ for all eternity, rejoicing in who He is and what He's done, praising Him forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we stand in awe of the gospel. Lord, we are just amazed that our God, our Creator, would send His own Son to live the life we couldn't live, to go to the cross, bear the punishment we deserve to bear, be placed in a tomb, raised on the third day, forever conquering death showing us that our future is so much better even than our today, as we long for and look forward to the reality, the glorious reality, that we will be with You for all eternity. We thank You, we praise You, and we worship You, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.